What if you were able to sit down for lunch with some of the greatest leaders in the world? What would you ask? What would they say? Welcome to the Lynch with a Leader podcast, where you're invited to join us in learning the spiritual principles behind big success. Here's your host, Mike Lynch. Welcome to episode 74 of the Lynch with a Leader podcast where we sit down with some of America's greatest leaders and find out how they have led with their faith out in front. If I've never met you before, my name is Mike Lynch, and it is my honor to be on this leadership journey with you as we're all seeking to be the leaders that we were created to be in the space and the place that God has put us. Well, I think we can all say never in our lifetimes have we ever walked through what we're walking through right now. A few weeks ago, when the news began to turn and things began to change, I think we all knew that the next uh, a little bit of time was going to be different. I don't know if any of us realized how different it would be. Uh, I am an extrovert, so being uh, not around a lot of people really is a draining thing to me, and it may be to you. Some of you may be introverts, and you're loving it, but ever how you're getting through it, I know we're all praying for our country and praying for the safety of our of our people and our leaders, and here you are being put in the spot you've been put in. I met with a group of leaders the other day, and we talked about it's not an accident. You are where you are. You're doing what you do, and you're making the difference that you make, and you're leading the people that you're leading. I think somehow in God's grand scheme, he probably factored all that in and factored in you being in that spot that you're in for such a time as this. And I'm so thankful that you're taking time to better yourself. You're taking time to make yourself a better leader during this awkward new time where we're providing hope and giving hope to others. It's it's good to get a little dose, dose of hope for ourselves. You know, if the, if the leader gets discouraged, it can discourage the whole troop. And I'm praying that today will be an encouraging time for you. Today, we, we uh, get ready to walk into Passion Week, the week 2,000 years ago that led up to our ultimate salvation that happened on Friday when Christ died for us on the cross and on Sunday when he got up and he walked out of that tomb. You know, that was a game changer for all of us, whether we even know the story or not. It impacted history in a huge way. And I think sometimes we we can easily get lost in the, oh, yeah, 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 I'm familiar with the story, and not know the story. Today, we get to sit down with somebody who knows the story. In fact, he came to his relationship with Christ because of trying to disprove the story. While walking for the Chicago Tribune, Lee Strobel stepped out onto an adventure that changed his life. He has since written the books, The Case for Christ, The Case for Faith, The Case for Miracles. My time with Lee was so enjoyable. It was one of those things when I got done with the call, I, I didn't want it to end because he was just so engaging. I cannot wait for you to listen. I can't think of a better way to start Passion Week than by sitting down with author, speaker, pastor, leader, Lee Strobel. So I want you to pull up a chair, and I want you to listen in. Take some good notes. 
So you'll probably want to take twice and listen in to my time with Lee Strobel. Well, Lee, it is an honor to have you on Lynch with a Leader. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm glad to do it. Thanks for asking. Man, to look at where you are now, is it hard to remember who you used to be before your journey started towards Christ? Is it hard to even fathom that now? In some ways it isn't, but in many ways it isn't because I still have friends who uh, are atheists or skeptics uh, and they remind me where my life would have ended up had I continued down that path. My, I got a phone call um, recently from uh, my sister telling me that our, our older brother, Ray, had just died from the flu. And um, uh, so Ray was an atheist. And um, I can look at his life and, and what it was about and, and what he focused on and what he valued and say that's where I would have been had I continued down that road. Um, so that reminds me of, um, you know, the, the roots that I have in skepticism and, and nothing wrong with being skeptical, nothing wrong with asking questions. But, um, you know, ultimately, my question asking brought me to faith. Do you think, and, I, and I've heard you talk a lot about it, and I know it was in the movie as well, your relationship with your dad. Yeah. How did that fuel some of that struggle that was probably going on more in the subconscious than it was the conscious of yeah. your pursuit of who God was? Yeah, it's interesting. If you study the famous atheists of history, Camus, Sartre, Nietzsche, Freud, Voltaire, Wells, Feuerbach, O'Hare, just down the line, all of them either had a father who died when they were young, divorced their mother when they were young, or with whom they had a very difficult relationship. And Freud talked about this. The, the implication is if your earthly father has hurt you or disappointed you, you don't want to pursue or you don't want to know a heavenly father because you think he's just going to be worse. He's only going to treat you worse. He's, always, he's bigger than your father. And so he's going to be the same as your father, except magnified. And he's going to disappoint you uh, like your earthly father did. Um, and, um, you know, my father and I had a very difficult relationship. Uh, we had a big argument on the eve of my high school graduation. And he looked at me and said, I don't have enough love for you to fill my little finger. And so, um, we had a difficult relationship. Was that a factor in me going down the road toward atheism? I think it was, Mm. uh, I didn't realize at the time, but I believe, it probably was a factor. Now, it's interesting that C.S. Lewis said there's an answer for this. Uh, when people find themselves, um, and of course, not everybody who has a bad relationship with their dad ends up an atheist. Right, but, right. Um, but some of us do. And, and um, what C.S. Lewis said is, imagine what the perfect father would be like. He would be gracious. He would be kind. He would be supportive. He would be loving. He'd be your biggest cheerleader. You, you just go down that list. You say, okay, that is a picture of your heavenly father. Mm. Uh, God is not just a magnified earthly father. He is uh, qualitatively different than your earthly father. And uh, if you can imagine a perfect father, that is a picture of what um, uh, God is like. And, and that's a picture of someone who we would want to pursue and want to know. You know, I heard you in an interview with Tom Holiday, and yeah. it was a great boy. And you guys were talking about a scene when you were filming the movie yeah. and something that the actor that was playing your father did that was right. almost cathartic a little bit to you. You mind talking about that? Yeah, very much so. Um, 
the actor who played my dad was an Academy Award winning, uh, nominated uh, actor. He's been 130 movies. Mm. Uh, recently died and went to be with the Lord. But um, when I came onto the set, they were filming that very scene where I had this blowout with my dad and it got cut from the movie. So you didn't see it in the movie, but um, my wife and I stepped to um, next to the scene. We watched the scene being played out. They call cut. And um, the, the actor walked over to me and um, he stayed in character as my father. And um, um, he reached out and he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, Lee, I'm sorry. Mm. And, and, and I just kind of tried to blow it off because I was uncomfortable and, and I kind of laughed and he, <laughs> said, and he said, no. And he gripped my shoulder a little more. He said, no, Lee, I'm sorry. Wow. And it was a very thoughtful, very kind moment where he was kind of standing in the shoes of my father and saying what my father probably would have said had mm. he lived long enough for us to be reconciled. Um, and I, I thought that was a very kind and, and generous uh, gesture on his part. You know, it's funny. We, we think as we get older, those things don't matter. And they really do. I mean, yeah. they really are. That, that part of us, it unlocks is a big deal. That's true. You're right. It, it, even at, you know, I'm 68 years old now. And, and even having that kind of a gesture at this stage of my life was a healing moment. And mm -hmm. um, um, much appreciated. You, you brought up your wife. Your wife was a huge part of your story. You probably yes. wouldn't be where you are today without her conversion to Christ. Yes. Talk, talk to me a little bit. Was that something you were excited about when you she came home and, and began to tell you that she was going to go to church and was going to follow Christ and was in a Bible study? What was your initial reaction to all that? Well, yeah, we had met when we were 14 years old. Mm. So we kind of grew up together. So we knew each other very, very, very well. And um, as the movie portrayed, it was through a Christian nurse who she had met, who shared faith with her and brought her to church. Uh, and Leslie came to me one day with the worst news an atheist could get, which is that I decided <laughs> to become a follower of Jesus. And uh, the, the uh, first word that went through my mind was divorce. Wow. I was, I was going to walk out. In fact, she had just planted a whole bunch of flowers in the backyard. And, uh, I was so mad. I stormed out of the house and I had to mow the lawn. And so I went out and I mowed down all these flowers. And she <laughs> <laughs> Very mature of me. Um, yeah, that's good. And we'll run over your better moments. I'm sure. Yeah, no passive aggressive, uh, <laughs> gestures on my part. But, um, uh, so I, I thought this was horrible news because, um, I looked ahead in our marriage and all I could foresee as a result of this was conflict. Mm. Uh, all of a sudden our values were going to be different. Um, how are we going to raise our children? How are we going to spend our money? How are we going to spend our weekends? Um, these, these basic questions, all of a sudden we're not on the same page anymore. Um, and we ended up writing a book called spiritual mismatch, which is what do you do if your spouse is, is, a, is not a believer? Uh, the Bible warns us against it. it says do not become unequally yoked with someone who's not a believer. And we can debate what it means to be yoked, but certainly a marriage is a yoking. It's a connection. It's a, it's a uh, lifelong contract, so to speak. And so uh, the Bible warns us that if you engage in that, it can be detrimental to your spiritual health. And uh, so I discouraged her from growing spiritually and discouraged her from going to church. But 
this uh, Christian nurse became a mentor to her and, and they would uh, have Bible studies when I was out of town or before I would come home from work and she would continue to help her grow spiritually. And uh, that was a big um, factor in Leslie's uh, ongoing growth as a Christian. So here you are, you're, you have a journalism background from college, you uh, have worked in law, and now you're uh, an investigative journalist with the Chicago Tribune and an atheist. Yeah. How did you begin to go, all right, I either want to know if it's true or I want to disprove it. How yeah. did that begin to formulate in you? Well, there were a lot of positive changes in Leslie after she came to faith in her character and in her values that were winsome and attractive and, and kind of pulled me toward faith. But on, at the same time, there was a, it was kind of a, 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 a repulsion, a, attraction kind of a thing going on because those things pulled me toward it. Uh, and yet I wanted the old Leslie back. I wanted our old life back. I, I, I wanted to get away from this conflict that we had over so many things. And so I was hoping to rescue her from this cult that she got involved in. So um, I decided to take my journalism and legal training and systematically investigate mm. uh, the resurrection of Jesus. Because even as an atheist, I recognized right away that the entire Christian faith is grounded in the resurrection of Jesus. He clearly claimed to be the son of God. At one point, he got up before a group and he said, I and the father are one. And the word in Greek there for one is not masculine, it's neuter, which means he, he was not saying I and the father are the same person. He was saying I and the father are the same thing. Mm -hmm. We're one in nature. We're one in essence. And the audience understood what he was saying because they picked up stones to kill him. He said, you, you're just right. a man and you're claiming to be God. So Jesus claimed to be God, but I could claim to be God. You could claim to be God. Right. could claim to be God. But if Jesus claimed to be the son of God, died, and then three days later rose from the dead, that's pretty good evidence he's telling the truth. So, you know, I'm an investigator by nature. Uh, that's what I did for a living at the Chicago Tribune. Uh, I'd won awards for investigative reporting. I knew how to pursue answers, pursue sources, pursue um, um, uh, evidence, uh, I studied and, and had my master's degree from Yale Law School, so I understand what evidence is and what constitutes reliable and persuasive um, evidence. So it was a natural for me to launch into this. And frankly, I thought, after being a journalist and seeing so many dead bodies, I figured I could disprove the resurrection in a weekend mm. because I'd never seen a dead body come back, <laughs> especially after three days. That's so right. um, I thought this is going to be easy. Um, and yet, ended up taking me almost two years of my life to uh, investigate the evidence. What was the biggest thing about the evidence that swayed you? As you got into it with that law mindset and that investigative side, what was it about the resurrection? I'm glad you talked about that because that is the, that's the linchpin. That, that's right. everything. What right. was it about what you found that you went, that's more than I was prepared to see? Yeah. Well, I like to use four words to begin with the letter E to kind of summarize that evidence. The first E is for execution. Was Jesus dead after being crucified? Well, there is no evidence anywhere of anyone ever surviving a full Roman crucifixion. Um, even the Journal of the American Medical Association, which is a secular, peer-reviewed, scientific medical journal, uh, carried an investigation into the death of Jesus. And the conclusion was, I'll quote it from memory, clearly 
The weight of the historical and medical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead even before the wound to his side was inflicted. Mm. Um, in fact, you could go to an atheist New Testament scholar like Gerd Ludeman, and he'll say that the death of Jesus by crucifixion is indisputable, historically indisputable. Why? Because normally when we study ancient history, we're lucky if we have one or two sources to confirm a fact. But for the death of Jesus, we have not only multiple accounts in the New Testament, we've got five ancient sources outside the Bible confirming and corroborating his death. So the first E is for execution. Jesus was dead. The second E stands for the word early. We have early reports or early accounts that Jesus rose from the dead. In other words, reports that go virtually back to the scene itself. Why is that important? Because I used to think like a lot of skeptics that the resurrection was a legend. And I knew it took time for a legend to develop in the ancient world. So I figured 100, 150, 200 years after the life of Jesus, that's when legends developed. And that's where this idea of the resurrection came from. But what I learned is that we have a report of the resurrection of Jesus based on eyewitness accounts uh, that report that he appeared to specific named individuals and groups of individuals that has been dated back by scholars to within months of the death mm. of Jesus, to within months. That is a news flash from ancient history. That is far too immediate to write it off as simply being a legend. And we've got other early reports uh, um, in, in the New Testament uh, as well. Uh, so early accounts or early reports. The third E is for empty, the empty tomb of Jesus. And here, the most persuasive reason to believe the tomb was empty is even the opponents of Jesus admitted it was empty. That's right. Everybody conceded it was empty. When the disciples began proclaiming that Jesus had risen, what the opponents said was, oh, well, the disciples stole the body. They're admitting the tomb is empty. They're trying to explain how it got empty. And, of course, the disciples didn't have the motive, the means, or the opportunity. So um, clearly the tomb was empty. And then the fourth E is eyewitnesses. Hmm. I said a few minutes ago that uh, we're lucky in ancient history if we have one or two sources to confirm a fact. And yet for the conviction of the disciples that they encountered the resurrected Jesus, we have no fewer than nine ancient sources inside and outside the New Testament confirming and corroborating the conviction of the disciples that they encountered the resurrected Jesus. That is an avalanche of historical data. So there are no other explanations that account for all of the data. Uh, the, the only explanation that really accounts for all of the data is that Jesus physically returned from the dead and thus proved that he was telling the truth when he said um, uh, that he and the Father are one. And, and when he said, um, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to Father but through me. When you got to that and you looked at it and you went, he really is who he said he is, what began to happen in Lee Strobel? What began to change about you when you admitted it and you turned your eyes and heart towards him? What changed about you? Well, initially, I didn't know what to do. I mean, I reached this verdict on November the 8th of 1981, um, but I, I didn't know what to do with it. Um, I thought, is that it? Am I done? Do I walk away? I, what, what happens here? And uh, my wife pointed out a verse to me that changed my life, John 1, 12. So this is, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And I noticed that verse forms an equation of what it means to become a follower of Christ, a child of God. Believe plus receive equals become. Mm -hmm. 
So I believe based on the data that Jesus was who he claimed to be, but that wasn't enough. I had to receive, Mm. receive what? Receive this free gift of forgiveness and eternal life that Jesus purchased for me on the cross when he died as my substitute to pay for all of my sins. And when I would receive this free gift of his grace, then I would become a child of God. So I got on my knees and I poured out a confession of a lifetime of immorality and um, turned from that. It's called repentance. Turned from that and received this free gift of God's grace, free gift of his forgiveness and his leadership of my life. And um, my, I became a child of God, according to John 1, 12 at that moment. Mm-hmm. And over time, God began to change me as a result. Um, after I was baptized, after I became part of a vibrant church, after I learned how to read the Bible with fresh eyes, after I learned to pray, after I learned to worship, God began to change my values, my character, my morality, my attitudes, my priorities, my relationships. I mean, all these things uh, over time began to change for the good. Uh, so much so that my little daughter, Allison, who until that time, she was five years old when I came to faith. And all she had known the first five years of her life was a dad who was absent, angry, coming home drunk, um, um, full of anger resentment. Um, when, when I came to faith, she started to watch and, and notice something's changed in my dad. Something's different with my dad. Something's new with my dad. And it took about four or five months. And then one Sunday she came up to Leslie and she said, I want God to do for me what he's done for daddy. Holy cow. And so she came to faith at age five. Um, she's now married to a seminary graduate uh, she's a, um, she writes children's books about God. She writes novels about, uh, God. And, um, she's a mother of my two of my four precious grandchildren. And then my son, same thing. He saw the difference God was making in his mom, his dad, and his sister. And, uh, he came to faith at a young age too, but he took an academic route, got a PhD in theology. He's now a professor of theology at the Talbot school of theology at Biola university teaching future pastors about Jesus Christ. And so God changed me. He changed my wife. He changed my son. He changed my daughter. He rescued our family. And now we're starting to see our grandchildren one by one come to faith. My little 12-year-old Penelope uh, was just baptized recently, uh, professing her faith in Christ. So we're seeing now the next generation, one after the other, uh, begin to follow suit. So uh, yeah, God really did change not just us individually, but us as a family. He really rescued us. We were on a road to destruction, and uh, God put us on the road to life. And I love that because it traces back to a nurse who was faithful yeah. in her calling. Yeah. Love your wife and pour into your wife. And little did she know that not only would she affect you and your wife and your children and your grandchildren, but millions that had read your books and seen the movie. It's really unbelievable how far her faith went, isn't it? You know, she just retired from nursing after all these years. And and, uh, her daughter, who's the same age as our daughter, never been married, just got married. And my daughter, uh, who came to faith through our, you know, the situation I just mentioned, uh, was the matron of honor at her wedding. And uh, so we're still close to them. Uh, she's made a huge difference in our lives. And you're right. I mean, uh, you know, my friend Cliff Connectly, who shares Jesus on college campuses, says 
a person coming to faith is like a chain with many links. Mm. Uh, sometimes we're a first link. Sometimes we're a middle link. Uh, occasionally we're the last link, but we're not called just to be the last link. We're called to love God and to love all people. And so when we're a link like that in a chain, then the whole chain gets to celebrate. Uh, the average person in America who comes to faith in Christ has heard the gospel six or seven times. Maybe we're the third time That's they've right. heard it from us. Uh, maybe we, we're not the ones to lead them actually in a prayer to receive Christ. But um, when a person comes to faith, God knows the link, all the links in the chain that brought him there. We can all celebrate it. And God, I believe, rewards those who uh, take a risk like Linda did. Her real name in real life is Linda. How Linda did and, um, you know, reach out and share Jesus uh, with others. I love that. That is just such a great story because everybody who picks up your book, it's the story behind the story, whether it's yeah, the case right. for Christ or the case for faith or the case for grace, the right. case for miracles. How soon did it begin to form in you? I need to take what I've learned and to put it in a book for people like me. When did that begin to churn inside you? It was actually a long time. Wow. Um, I, I thought... Um, you know, I had written one book as, as an atheist, um, a legal book that's used in some law schools as supplementary text. And uh, that was the only book I'd ever written. And, and so I stayed in journalism. Uh, I came to faith on November the 8th of 81. I stayed in journalism for a number of years because I believe it was important to have a Christian voice in mm -hmm. the newsroom. There were so few um, uh, authentic Christians in newsrooms that I thought was important. So it was a number of years later, 1987. So about six years later that I felt God calling me out of journalism into uh, full-time church work at a church, uh, at a 60% pay cut, uh, to, uh, to serve. In Congratulations. Welcome yeah. to ministry. <laughs> Brilliant financial move. That's right. and, um, and I still, I wasn't planning to write a book. It wasn't until the mid-1990s, roughly, that uh, I started to uh, write books. And uh, it wasn't until 1998 that I wrote The Case for Christ. And I had to retrace and expand upon my original investigation and interview these scholars and get it down on tape and update it in order to present The Case for Christ book. But um, I never, you know, it didn't occur to me. I remember when Les and I were taking a walk one day and she said to me, you ought to, I had done a, a message at our church called The Case for Christ. And um, I'd actually shown videotapes of some little interviews I'd done with scholars. And she said to me, I remember going on this walk and I can remember exactly where I was. And she said, you should turn that into a book. And I said, no, I can't, how can it? You know, well, maybe, maybe. And uh, so um, uh, I started to think about it and I'd written at that time, a couple of Christian books, and, and uh, uh, I proposed it to the publisher. And the rap back then, of course, was a books on apologetics, which is evidence for the faith, don't yeah. sell. So I thought for sure they weren't going to want it. But they said, no, we, we think this is what God's put on your heart. I think you should write it. So I ended up writing it and, and uh, you know, never anticipated uh, what would happen as a result. That is amazing. Does it blow you away now to look at it? and hear people talk about it and think, oh, yeah. I almost didn't do that. And it's in so many languages around <sighs> the world. And then to have the film, which has gone all around the planet. Right. Um, and there's also a documentary that was made that's gone everywhere. In fact, um, they, it was been dubbed into Chinese, and a million copies of that documentary have been smuggled into uh, mainland China. Uh, so um, 
you're right. I mean, uh, the beauty about books is that I can be asleep here in Houston, Texas, and somebody in China might be reading the book. Um, and I get letters from people all over the world who've come to faith as a result. And the movie, too. The movie has been um, a great... And by the way, the movie's still free on Netflix. That's awesome. So I tell people that if you haven't seen it, it's free on Netflix. You can still watch it. And um, uh, God has used that in a powerful way. Um, that's something we never anticipated. We didn't approach anybody to make a movie. We were... I got a call out of the blue 20 years almost after the book was out saying, hey, you know, well, how about if we make a movie? I said, okay. <laughs> that's incredible. That is incredible. I had a, a very good friend at our church. We'd started a church and we had a gentleman come in that had retired in the banking world. Uh, one of our guys had met him and played golf with him and uber skeptical. I don't think he would classify himself as an atheist, but certainly not a believer and certainly not interested, but was intrigued by this guy that he had met. And I remember meeting with him and saying, you need to read this book. And I remember the night when an email hit my inbox at 2, 2 a.m. that said, I believe. Oh, that's awesome. And it changed his life, went in ministry. And, you know, oh. you think about, you think about the story. Why? Because that resurrection, there was evidence for the resurrection. Yeah. Yeah. What do you wish every Christian knew about what you know? You know, what do you wish they got? It's a great question. I, I just think that we live in an age of increased skepticism, mm -hmm. even hostility toward the gospel. Uh, a friend of mine said recently that evangelism in the 21st century is spelled apologetics. And of course, apologetics is re evidence for the faith and answering tough questions about the faith. And, um, you know, I think that's true. If you look at why young people are leaving the church, one of the biggest reasons is they don't feel it's a safe place to ask questions and to doubt. Um, so, um, you know, what's the result? We have uh, currently it takes 86 church members working one year to lead one person to faith. Right. Well, that's a formula for the demise of the church. Right. Uh, you know, two thirds of churches in America are plateaued. Uh, Ten are closing their doors permanently every day. So um, I think it's really important that in the 21st century, we be able to explain not just what we believe, but why we believe it. And that's why the big initiative in my life and how I'm spending the next 10 years of my life is uh, our new center for evangelism and applied apologetics at Colorado Christian University. Uh, we are launching a completely online, completely accredited um, undergraduate degree and master's degree. Um, or courses for people just if they want to learn more in how to share your faith and how to defend it as being true. We will have ultimately 181 courses that will be available. The first group of those, the first 30 courses are going to be available in um, fall of 2020. And starting in spring of 2020, people can begin to sign up. And so I just encourage people, you know, if you're a Christian and you want to know more about why we believe we believe, take a course on the evidence for the resurrection. Take a course on why does God allow pain and suffering? These are just five weeks. Um, the whole course is just five weeks. You do it online and um, you can deepen your faith and make you more confident in what you believe, but also equip you to be able to better share with other people. So if people are interested, they could go to ccu.edu slash Strobel Center and uh, uh, sign up for the updates. We'll keep them updated on when they can sign up. 
I love that. And I'll put that in our show link Thanks. as well. So everybody can tap into that. I saw that in it. Dr. Ravi Zacharias is just a, a great friend yes. and, 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 and similar heart. Yes, because I, I, I man, I, I love what you said that I'm an evangelist who uses apologetics. Yes. And yes. that definitely comes across in your teaching. I follow you on Twitter and I'll say, yeah. I'll see you say I'm in the Denver airport. If anybody wants to come talk about Christ, come find me. Yeah. Is that is that just still a burning passion in your heart that I, I want to tell? I, I want to drag as many people to heaven with me as I can. I love that. And so, um, yeah, when we're in the airport, we just say we're at gate 4B at uh, the Denver airport or wherever we are and uh, stop. And I do get people. Uh, I'll, I'll tweet out that. And then 30 seconds later, I'll get a tap on my shoulder. And, uh, uh, oh my gosh, here's a guy. And, uh, he said, yeah, I have some questions about Jesus. I will sit down, I'll buy him breakfast and we'll talk. I remember one guy, I was in uh, the, actually the Denver airport uh, eating at Elway's uh, restaurant breakfast with my wife. And I tweeted it and a guy comes in and he says, Hey, I saw the, I saw your tweet. And he said, I got to rough my plane, but boy, I, I really am struggling with why I should believe uh, Christianity. And I said, where do you live? He said, I live in Des Moines. I said, I'm doing a conference in Des Moines coming up. Wow. And, uh, I said, why don't you come to that conference? I'll buy your way. And uh, he, and I gave him the information and, and he ended up coming to that conference and it really solidified his faith. So you know, social media, who knows? You, ne you never know. Who would have ever dreamed? Never, that's right. That's right. That is crazy. <laughs> that is crazy. So you learn it. You come to faith. You write your book. But that's just really the probably the beginning of your journey. In some ways, do you feel like you're learning as much now oh, as yeah. you've ever learned about Christ? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, that's a beauty about Christianity. You can understand it with a childlike faith, or you can spend your entire life studying at the deepest levels and never get fully to the bottom of, of understanding everything and exploring everything. It's so rich. And, and, you know, my son got his PhD in theology, four years of full-time research and wow. study. He's a Jonathan Edwards scholar and, and delved into his life and his teachings. And it's, it's just a, a bottomless pit of wonderful, wonderful revelations. And so I continue to study God's word every day. I learn from other apologists, people like Robbie Zacharias, good friend of mine, uh, Jay Warner Wallace, former cold case homicide investigator and atheist who became a Christian. Um, Josh McDowell, who's become a good friend. And, and uh, I learn from them. Uh, Gary Habermas, by the way, get this, uh, one of the guys, uh, scholars who I interviewed for my book, Case for Christ, is Dr. Gary Habermas. Absolutely. One of the leading experts in the world on the resurrection. He is currently completing a book on the resurrection that is 5,000 pages. Holy cow. It, it is the most complete laying out of the evidence and all the answers to all the possible objections to the resurrection, 5,000 pages. And I'll read every page of that. And I'll sit down with Gary and let him tell me the story. But, you know, that's how much material there is. Um, and we can all continue to learn. Um, uh, and, and that's what makes it a fascinating study. 
I remember he was a professor at Liberty yeah, back right. during that time. Liberty. Yeah, when yeah. he was when he was there, and I don't think I had one of his classes oh. at that time. Just the major I was in. Yeah, and they had me in the athlete. He was way too smart for them to put yeah. an athlete in his class because I, I wouldn't have turned out. I would have bombed the class like I did on the field. So it probably wouldn't have turned out well. You spent so much time with skeptics and, and, and unbelievers hearing their stories. What do you wish every pastor knew about skeptics and unbelievers? What have you learned about them? The enemy. They're not the enemy. Satan is the enemy. Uh, Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist, is not our enemy. Uh, Christopher Hitchens, who is a famous atheist, who I got a chance to share Jesus with, is not our enemy. Um, uh, Satan is our enemy. And so... Uh, we need to befriend these people. Jesus was a friend of sinners. Jesus was falsely accused of being a drunkard and a glutton. Why? Because he was so associated with the riffraff of his society. He he wasn't afraid to hang out with people who um, were skeptics and doubters and so forth. So um, here's my conviction. I believe that every pastor needs to have at least one deep, rich, caring relationship with a hellbound pagan. Someone who is a skeptic, who is a doubter, who is an atheist or skeptic, and and they become best friends. And you hang out together, you have lunch together, you play golf together, you go on vacations together, you go to movies together, you have long discussions together, you watch the Super Bowl together. And after a period of time of growing close to this person, you ultimately, as a pastor, say, wait a minute, it is not an option for my friend to go to hell. That is not an option. So... Whatever I need to do at my church to reach my friend, that is what I'm going to do. Mm. Knowing if I can reach that one friend who I know so well, if I can, because I know him, I can, I know how to reach him. If I can reach that one friend, then my church can reach a whole bunch of people who aren't quite as skeptical as my friend. Like, you know, when I wrote my, write my sermons, one of the things I do, I, I, I write a point, point number one, blah, 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 blah. And then I put down my pen. I said, wait a minute. What would my brother Ray say to that? Mm. My mm. atheist brother. Oh, I know what he would say. He'd say, oh, sure. But what about blah, blah, blah? So then I pick up my pen. I say, now, some of you are thinking, what about blah, blah, blah? Here's how I think Jesus would respond to that. So because I had him as a, a brother and I understood him and I knew him and I spoke to him and I listened to him, um, uh, I could write messages that were designed to reach him, knowing I could reach a whole bunch of people like him. Uh, I think that I, I think if every pastor did that, it would change the church in America and, and the whole world. Um, and so I would say every day um, of, of the month, if you um, um, have a calendar like I do, I put on that calendar. Who am I going to? I put two things on the calendar every day of every month. The first thing I put in is for my marriage. Hmm. On every, every first day of the month, I, I ask myself the question, how would I like to be married to me? And that makes me think, what kind of a husband am I being? And so I like every 30 days to ask, how would I like to be married to me? But the second question I ask myself is, who am I, what non-believer am I meeting with this month? And if I don't have anything on my calendar yet, I get on the phone and call a friend and say, hey, uh, let's get together for lunch. Let's go play golf or whatever. Um, I want to make sure I'm mixing it up and, and having friendships with people who are far from God so I can understand their worldview, so I can understand their attitudes and their uh, perspective. Uh, it's so important that we do more listening than talking, uh, that we uh, 
um, do more, uh, you know, we ask more questions than we deliver sermons to people. And um, that we really value people because they're made in the image of God. And we respect the fact they're on a journey. They may not be as far as we are, and that's okay. Um, uh, it's okay that they're on a journey. Uh, let me be a link in that chain, whether I'm beginning link, middle link, or end link, doesn't matter. I just want to be faithful to love God and to love people. Oh, I love that. You know, I think of that investigative side of you, and we think of heaven one day, and I don't think, you know, I think heaven's going to be such a, an incredible place, but I bet that investigative side of you is not going to go away. If you could sit down with Christ one day and 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 things have calmed down and and there's not a line of people waiting to meet him, and you could ask him about one story or one miracle you've studied, what would you want to know about? What would oh, you want him to tell you about? I've got a mental list of a thousand things I want to ask Jesus about. I'll make sure and get in before you because you'll be like, you'll last longer than I did. How does this Arminian and Calvinism thing fit together? Oh, I'll definitely miss that conversation. I want to ask about that. Yeah, there's there's so many things that you'll reveal in those days. We'll be able to see how the the little actions of love that we do in the name of Jesus, how they have a repercussion that we were never aware of. I believe God will open our eyes to that. I believe he'll open the eyes to every conversation that we had where we sought to tell people about Jesus and the implications of that and how that rippled through different lives and so forth. Every time we're generous, every time we serve, every time we give, every time we love someone, I think God will reveal to us um, uh, the impact that that had in ways that we never knew, we never anticipated. That when I when I uh, give to my church, and I know that part of that goes toward missions around the world, that someday God will open my eyes mm. and show me, you know what, you gave that money to your church. Let me show you what I did with it. And he's going to show us the lives that were transformed because the gospel was taught and, 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 and stomachs were fed and, and, and people were loved all around the planet. And he'll reveal to us how our giving and how our serving and how our evangelism um, had impacts that we, we had no idea about, right. but never know. Um, it's funny you ask about heaven because I'm currently working, working on my next book, which is, are you really, yeah, oh, are you really? Oh my gosh. I've already done about half a dozen interviews uh, so far on that book with experts and scholars and, and, um, I'm in the process of writing that now. And, uh, uh, it's, it's an eye opener. It's exciting. It's thrilling. It's wonderful. Uh, and you know, the Bible in first Peter, uh, first chapter of first Peter, uh, links, uh, what it calls our living hope with the resurrection of Jesus. I have hope that someday I'll spend eternity with God in heaven. Not, not in the sense that it's a blind optimism, not in the sense that it's a, uh, oh golly, I hope and I hope and I hope it's going to be true. The Bible says it's a living hope because right. it's based on the resurrection of Jesus. And we talked a few minutes ago about all the evidence that points toward the truth of the resurrection. And we can, we can anchor our faith in that truth, and um, uh, know with confidence that because Jesus was raised from the dead, so someday will we as well. Boy, that's so good. I can't wait to get my hands. We just did a sermon series on heaven. and Oh, did you? Awesome. I tell you what, it, it's just, you know, we talk so much about how to get someone there, 
Yeah. But then it's like telling them to pack for a trip. You never yeah. tell them about, and you <laughs> that's never, a, that's a good, yeah. You never, you never tell them what that's at. We were together with an, with a, a lady. She was a saint. Her husband had been a bivocational pastor for 50 years. He had been a university president, provost, vice president for 50 years, large public university here in Atlanta. And he had passed a number of years ago, but they had been the pastor of my mom and, and married my mom and dad. Well, I had lost my mom and dad in 2017. And uh, we had gone to take this lady out to church. She was in her, or, uh, this lady out to lunch. She was in her nineties, my sister, my daughter and I, and we went back to her house and we were talking and I, it was one of those transformative days for me. And we prayed together. And at the end of the prayer, she said, and Lord, when you run into Chuck and Ann and my bill today, tell them we said hello and we'll see them soon. <laughs> and, you know, I left that conversation and that prayer going, why would that not happen? Yeah. yeah. Why would I think the Lord wouldn't go, right. hey, I just, if yeah. heaven's as real as I believe it is, yeah. and, you know, it's not something I would just stand up and preach all the time. Hey, sure. get God to tell somebody hello. But yeah. in that moment, the realness of heaven yeah. struck me. Yeah. And boy, I cannot wait. I, I bet you are learning so much going I, through this. It's exciting. And it, it is. I, I thought I, I like the way you put it. Sometimes we pack for a destination. We don't think about what the destination is really going to be like. Mm. But um, it, it, it's uh, uh, it, it's just staggering. And uh, and and, you know, to me, having the confidence that is true, that it's not make-believe, it's not wishful thinking, it's not mythology, it's not legend, but it's based on the historical bedrock of the resurrection of Jesus. And it goes into that grace that you talk about in your yeah. book, yeah. that God gives it to us and loves us in spite of us. Yeah. How, how have you handled grace how have you handled grappling with what he did for us on the cross and that willingness to truly to take all the penalty of our sin how have you grappled with that well um you know about nine years ago i almost died hmm. um my wife found me unconscious and um i opened my eyes in the emergency room and the doctor said you're one step away from a coma two steps away from dying and uh, I lingered at the edge of death for several days there. And I was mentally confused. I was one of the um, effects of the illness I had. It, it, my brain was actually taking in um, moisture. Um, um, I had um, um, a condition where my blood sodium level had fallen to a, a dangerous level where it was threatening to kill me. And um, as a result of the blood sodium being so low, my brain was taking in um, uh, moisture and expanding in my skull. And so I was, uh, hallucinating. I was, um, confused mentally. And in the midst of that, I thought that God had walked away from me. Mm. I thought that, um, he had turned his back on me. Was it true? Of course not. But, um, I felt that, uh, in my mental confusion. And as I recovered from that and, um, got past the point of my life being in jeopardy and was coming back to reality and, and feeling better again, my son um, said, Dad, I, I feel like you feel disconnected from God. And I said, well, yeah, I had this weird experience. I feel disconnected. He said, let me help you reconnect. And so he led me through a prayer. It took about half an hour. And in this prayer, he would prompt me 
to strip away everything. So he said, let's just pray. And he said, uh, you know, um, just to say to God, God, I'm, I'm right now, um, I'm not a husband. Uh, I'm not a father. I'm not a grandfather. I'm not a pastor. I'm not my bank account. I'm not a best-selling author. I'm not a teacher. I'm not, and, and I, I, we just, we just stripped away slowly over a period of about half an hour, every identity that we tend to cling to. Um, and, and, and until at the end, all there was left was me, a sinner saved by the grace of God. Mm. And he reconnected me with God at that level. Um, and it, it's changed my life. And I think sometimes when we pray, we bring things to the table. We think, oh, yeah, I'm praying to God, but of course I'm successful. And do I really need this? Because, hey, I got a nice bank account and I'm doing good. You know, we bring unintentionally, we bring these identities into our, and when we strip all that away, and I encourage me, just pray, just strip all that away until all that's left is you as an adopted son or an adopted daughter of the Most High. And that just was a way of reminding me that it's only by grace that I am saved. It's only by uh, uh, God offering through the sacrifice of his son on the cross, where Jesus, as my substitute, paid for all of my sins, past, present, and future, and offered forgiveness and eternal life as a free gift of his grace. Um, John 1.12, as I mentioned earlier, believe plus receive equals become. Mm. When we believe and we receive this free gift of his grace, we become a child of God forever. It is only on that basis. And when we take away all the idea that I deserve it or I've earned it or whatever, um, uh, and, and we're just reduced down to we are sinners saved by grace, that is a reminder of what God's grace is all about. Sometimes I think we, we, we kind of, um, we know that we're not saved by our works. The Bible's so clear on that. It's not by our good deeds that we're saved. But sometimes we come to Christ in faith, we repent, we receive this free gift of grace, but then we think, yeah, but I'm going to show him he was right to really do that because I'm going to be awesome. I'm going to give <laughs> all this money to the church and I'm going to be the best Christian in the world. It's almost like we try to back end the good deeds mm -hmm. and uh, we can't do that. Uh, we do good deeds because God loved us first and uh, it's out of our love for God that we serve. And, and we graciously extend God's love to other people. Um, so I think to get away from that and to say, uh, strip everything away, we're just a, a child adopted by the Most High, saved by His grace. That's a great reminder of who we are in His light. What an amazing occurrence for your son yeah, to be the one that did that for you when you yeah. weren't able to have that with your father. I know, isn't it? He um, and you know he was a trouble kid in high school. I didn't think he was going to graduate <laughs> high school, and yet God got a hold of his heart on a wow. mission trip between high school and college. Went on to get undergraduate degree, two master's degrees, and then studied at Yale University and at um, University of Aberdeen in Scotland. Got his PhD. And is now this renowned scholar and has written half a dozen books and to see his life transformed. And then in that moment when I couldn't grapple mm. with this thing on my own, how, how, he, how God used him in my life to, to minister to me, uh, as you say, in a way that um, my father was never able to minister to me. 
Um, it's a wonderful thing when you see our children take the next leg of the That's journey. Right. That's and right. Take the baton and, and complete this next leg um, and then pass the baton on to his children. It's an awesome thing. You know, scripture scripture writes the epitaph of David's life in, in Acts when it said, and David served his purpose in his generation, and then he fell asleep. David yeah. was done. Yeah. What do you think is Lee Strobel's purpose in this generation? Why do you think God made you like he made you with that investigative prowess, with that incredible law background from Yale and the journalism degree from, from college? Why do you think he put you together like he put you together? You know, I think he gave me a unique mission. And, and I think that mission, I'm not a scholar. Um, we have all these scholars who are brilliant and do all this original research into the evidence for the faith and why we believe what we believe and in theology and into doctrine, these wonderful, wonderful scholars. And I believe God gave me a unique mission, which was to be the bridge between that scholarly world and the everyday world. So in my books, it's not Lee Strobel saying, hey, here's why I you, know, you ought to believe. I go to great scholars with PhDs from Cambridge and Oxford and Yale and Brandeis and major universities. And because God wired me up as a journalist, I ask the questions that the average person has um, and try to get them to put the cookies on the bottom shelf to explain things that everyday people like us can understand. And then my role is to get that out to a wide audience. So I think it's kind of a, a, a unique and, and niche in the kingdom. Um, but I love it because it suits who God wired me up to be. He made me to do this. And um, uh, so it's a joy to be able to be that conduit for all of this incredible scholarly research to get into the everyday world so that we all can understand and benefit from it. When you meet Christ that first time, when your eyes close here and your eyes open there and everything you write in the case for heaven, you begin to live out. What's the first thing you're going to want to tell him? You know, I, I don't even know what that's going to be because it's going to be so, so spontaneous, but I'm going to say, thank you. I know that's going to be the first, probably the first words out of my mouth. Thank you. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for offering forgiveness and eternal life as a free gift of your grace. I didn't deserve it. I didn't earn it. I was running the other way. I was uh, 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 an immoral, living, drunken, profane narcissist. And you and your grace reached out and you rescued me. Um, thank you for who you are and what you've done. Man, I hope you enjoyed that time with Lee. I am so thankful there are brilliant people out there like Lee Strobel and Ravi Zacharias and, and people that are using their intelligence to inform us of the validity of our faith. Yeah, I think it's really easy to go, well, I'll, ju I'll just accept it and, and, and trust, which is massive, Right. But to know that there's history backing it up and there's sources backing it up and there's, there's evidence that demands, as Josh McDowell said, evidence that demands a verdict. We got to figure out what we're going to do with it. I am so thankful that Lee Strobel used his life and is using his life to inspire my faith 
to inspire others' faith through his movie, through his books, Case for Christ, Case for Faith, Case for Miracles. If you haven't read those, you need to get your hands on them and read them. If you've got a friend who is learning and they they haven't met Christ yet, but they're really interested, there are no better books to put in your their hands than those. Maybe you heard him talking today about his certificate program and and the work that he's doing with this apologetic center. All that information is going to be in our show notes. What a great way for you to grow in your faith. And as as time moves on and our society moves on, being able to defend your faith and and have an informed faith is a great, great thing. And Lee is providing a platform for us to be able to do that. Thank you, Lee Strobel. I, I can't think of a better way to begin Easter week than by letting us listen in on this time together and and on what you've learned. Man, so, so good. Well, in our next episode, we get to sit down with another great leader who is inspiring a generation. He has affected thousands with his thoughts, with his life, with his work. His name is Brad Lominick, and you are going to love Brad. If you don't know him, you're going to want to get to know him. You'll want to go out and pick up his books and, and learn more of what he's up to now because he's a thinker, he's a leader, he is an inspiration to those of us that are trying to make a difference in the leadership uh, place that God has put us. Oh, I can't wait to meet with you again next time as we listen into our time with Brad Lominick. Well, I pray you have a great Easter week. I pray even though you'll be connecting online like our church is connecting online, that you will... Uh, Man, you'll be able to join on Sunday morning with your congregation to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There was a reason they all died for him, because they knew that he had gotten up and walked out. If you don't have somewhere to join Sunday morning, I invite you to join with me at North Star. You can go to www.live.northstarchurch.org. At 9.30 or 11 a.m., you can join in with us as we celebrate the resurrection. If not, please come see us again next time on Lynch with the Leaders. We sit down with Brad Lominick. Go be the leader that you were created to be now in the space and the place that God has put you. Thank you for listening to the Lynch with a Leader podcast with your host, Mike Lynch. If you enjoyed this episode, you can help more people hear it by subscribing and leaving a review wherever you may be listening. For full episode notes and more spiritual leadership resources, visit MikeLynch.com. 